Dear church family, guests and visitors with us this morning, we welcome you to worship. And we pray that we will be blessed under the Lord's word today. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 33, the first three verses and then verse 20. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with the psaltery, an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. Our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Please turn with me in to the New Testament now to the epistle of Paul to the Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you, And peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Jesus, the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. But I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I want or know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in this flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye see in me, and now here to be in me. So far the reading of God's holy, beautiful word. Dear church family, this morning we have the privilege of returning to the first Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism. I'd like to turn there, uh, page 27, with you and read the opening two questions. A Lord's Day that is rich, rich in comfort and meaning for God's people. Question one. What is thy only comfort in life and in death? That I, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Well, how many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, may live and die happily? Three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how that I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, how I shall express my gratitude 
to God for such deliverance. What is your comfort? What is your only comfort? What is your lasting comfort? This opening question of the catechism doesn't take any time to begin probing our hearts and our mind. And it's probing the, what is the purpose for why you live? Why you wake up every morning? Why, why are you going about the various tasks that you do on a, on a daily basis? It's really a question that addresses our outlook on life. Or uh, what is our, our view of the world or what is our world view? What is a worldview? Well, one definition might be a worldview is a commitment or a, a way of orientating our hearts that could be expressed as a, a story that's embedded in a set of presuppositions. And I'll, we'll explain this in a minute. That we hold to. And that provides a foundation for how we carry out and live out our daily life. So it's a commitment, a way of orientating our hearts. It was often expressed in the the idea of a story that has as its roots some presuppositions that we hold to be true about reality. And that provides a foundation for how we then live our life. It's something that lies deep within our very being. Yes, it involves the mind, but more so it involves our hearts. Your worldview is really your spiritual orientation in life. It's not just theoretical truth that you can learn, but it is, the, it is truth that you hold so dearly and you, it is demonstrated and lived out on your, on your day-to-day life. It's expressed in the story of your life, but it's, it's broader than your own personal story. It, it is, it is a, it is lived out in the context of the rest of the world for others to see. It's a story that's grounded on a set of presuppositions. And children, that's a big word. But essentially are foundational truths that you hold to be true. Now, a little bit like assumptions. Assumptions that you make about certain things in life. Now, these presuppositions or assumptions may be true. They may be partially true. Or they may be completely false. 
They may be things that you're consciously aware of in your thinking. And they may be things that you haven't really thought about, but yet they are part of who you are, part of how you grew up, part of things that have just been inculcated into your very way of thinking and living that you just take for granted. They may be consistent with one another, or they may be blatantly contradictory with each other. Some presuppositions that we may have, and we would say you need to have, when it comes to the Christian worldview, would be that I believe that this is the very Word of God. I presuppose that because God has told me. And I take this as truth from the get-go. I believe that it may be presuppositions about that the very character of God. Do I hold true that he's kind and compassionate and gracious, but yet he's just and holy? Others, others may hold other presuppositions. And we've just evolved. You can't prove it. But they believe it. It's a set of beliefs that you hold to and in your life is carried out because of it. These will provide the foundation for how you live, for the decisions you make, how you respond to various situations, challenging or positive situations that come your way. Ultimately, your worldview is going to answer four foundational questions. The first is a question of origin. Where do you come from? Where do we come? Where do I come from? Second question that it's going to answer is meaning. What, what, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why are you and I here on this earth? The next question is a question of morality. How should we live? Given that there's a purpose for life, how should we live out our daily life? And then the question, the final one, is a question of destiny. Where are you going? Where will you be tomorrow? Ten years from now? Fifty years from now? Where will you be in eternity? The catechism as a whole... And this opening question in particular, seek to provide a framework and answer to these questions, particularly the questions of the purpose of life and how we should then live. But it is also hitting on the origin, but also the end. This first question of the catechism is a question that underscores 
the human heart's longing and desire for purpose, for meaning, for hope, for comfort. It's a question and an answer that underscore why we are here on earth. Namely, that we desire hope and comfort. And the answer points us to the fact that it is the Lord Jesus Christ alone who is the answer to that question and to all of our questions about life and death. It's a question and answer that address the reality that he, Jesus Christ, is the only one who can address our questions. He's the only one who is the foundation that can give purpose and meaning to your life and mine. He alone is the answer to all the questions that will then help us to live with a resolve for him that no matter what happens in my life, today, tomorrow, the next day, that it is going to be used for my spiritual good, my conformity to Christ, if I'm in him, and eventually for my eternal gain. And this isn't something the catechism brings on its own. This is, this is a question and answer that are rooted in the scriptures, and the Apostle Paul sort of summarizes this question in this phrase in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what we hope to consider this morning. From this text, from the catechism, this theme of lasting comfort. And we want to look at its scope, this life and the next, its significant, its source, Jesus Christ, and its significance. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi from prison, as becomes clear very soon, as, as you no doubt have gathered as we read that first chapter. He begins with greeting the church of Philippi in the name of God the Father and Jesus Christ. He, he reminisces and re- recollects what the church at Philippi meant means to him, and how he prays for them. Note, note what he prays for. He gives thanks for them, for their fellowship in the gospel, verse 4. He expresses his confidence that the work of Jesus will be completed, will be brought to fruition, verse 6. He thanks them for their support for him while he is in prison, verse 7. He expresses his love for them. And he prays for them. He prays that their love would abound more and more in the knowledge and, ju- in knowledge and righteousness and justice. Verse 9. He prays that they would be a discerning people as they live out daily life. Verse 10. He prays that they would live sincere lives and lives that are without offense. Verse, verse 10, he prays that they would live fruit-filled lives for the glory of God. Verse 11, 
And yet Paul understands that the Philippians are going to, as they hear this letter being read to them, he understands that they're going to be asking the question, but Paul, you're in prison. What does this mean for, what does this mean? How, how should we be thinking about, about this? And in verse 12, he transitions from his, his, his reflection on who they are and his desires for them to his particular circumstances. Yes, he's, he's in prison. His life is uncertain. Will he be released? Will he be sentenced to death? Will he live or will he die? And in some sense, for, for some, this would be paralyzing. How could they go on with the uncertainty? But despite the unknowns in his own life, Paul acknowledges that his being in prison is a good thing. He says it's, it, it's happened for, so that the gospel could be furthered, for the furtherance of the gospel. He, he sees as a result of him being in prison, Christ being testified with even within the palace. He sees the brethren, those at Philippi and elsewhere, be waxing confident, growing bold because of his bonds. In verse 15 through 18, he reflects on the fact that Christ is being preached because of this. Uh, He acknowledges, yes, there are some who are doing this out of contention, trying to add add to his sufferings, because they're doing it with selfish motives. But verse 18, he summarizes and says, whether... Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, and yea, and will rejoice. So Paul can sit back and rejoice over the fact that he's suffering right now, that he's in prison. And then in verse 19, Paul says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayers by the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ." And this this that Paul refers to that is going to turn to his salvation, he's referring to his bonds, he's referring to the, the, the desire of some to add to his affliction by preaching Christ out of enmity. But Paul is confident that whatever's happening to him, this suffering, it's further molding and shaping him, conforming him more and more into the image of Christ. And it shall turn to his salvation, to his conformity into Jesus Christ. Because there are people praying for him, and through the prayers of God's people, the Spirit of God is being supplied to him. And yet, Paul was a human. He was a man. And there's no doubt there were times, as, as is going to be evident in this letter, in the next few verses, that he's going to reflect. Am I going to be living? Will I be released? Or will I die? What does that mean for me? He looks forward to the uncertainties of life. Will he live? Or will he die? And Paul says that it was his desire whether he lived or died, that 
Christ would be magnified in his body, whether by his life or by his death. And here in verse 20, Paul introduces this, these, this repeated, these repeated words of life and death, in life, in death, by life, by death. Several times throughout the rest of this chapter. And these are words our catechism picks up on in this opening question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? As Paul uses them, they're two words that really speak to the totality of life. From beginning to end and beyond. In all of life. In all of this life here on earth as you live it out. What is your only comfort? What is, and Paul says he has it. For me to live is Christ. For Paul, there is a singular purpose. There is a, a purpose, a meaning that brings contentment and fulfillment that he doesn't have to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. And you and I need this same comfort, this same hope, this same contentment. We cannot just live off of hope that, or comfort that satisfies us once in a while here or now here maybe a little bit tomorrow maybe a little bit a week or a month down no that's the kind of comfort the world gives by nature we will seek to find purpose and meaning in life in in a variety of things maybe it's in our attempts to live a very legalistic life conforming to the rules and regulations of the scripture thinking we've got it all together we we've met the standard and yet we know it doesn't bring comfort it brings bondage or maybe it's in a life of self-fulfillment that you've attempted to try to find hope comfort purpose in life maybe in a variety of things in li- maybe it's in a relationship Maybe it's in the consuming of items that will, will make you feel better. Drugs, alcohol, food, gaming. Maybe it's in your work. You work, work, work. Seeking purpose and fulfillment in it. But no matter where and what you do, apart from Christ, you, if you're honest with yourself, it, it leaves, maybe there's a momentary high, a certain sense of satisfaction, but there's always, what's next? Is there more? The next encounter, the next day of work, the next business transaction, the next meal, the next... Friends, where are you trying to find purpose and meaning in life? Where are you seeking to find this lasting comfort? A comfort that just doesn't last for a moment, but for life. 
and not just for this life, but for the life to come. We need a comfort that's going to not only stand the test of time, but is going to transition with us into glory and, or into, into eternity. Paul says that he has this comfort. He has this sense of purpose so that whether he lives or dies, it's going to be okay. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If he, had, if he had a choice in the matter, he doesn't know which of the two he would choose. Friends, is your sense of purpose and identity so certain that it doesn't matter for you whether you live or whether you die? Maybe, maybe someone's asking, is, is such a comfort available? Where do I find that purpose and meaning in life? And friend, if you're asking that question, the answer to it is, it exists. It is available. It's available for all. And friend, it's not going to come from, from within you. It's not going to come from the things of this world. It's going to come from outside of you. And in the process of finding such a comfort, you will be emptied of anything and everything that you seek to find meaning in, identity in, purpose in, in this life. And in being emptied of yourself, of the, 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 the one who is the true source of comfort, our Lord Jesus Christ, God, will become abundantly and absolutely precious to you. The source of lasting comfort and hope is in God alone. And Paul, Paul puts it this way, for me to live is Christ. Christ becomes central, is central for the Apostle Paul. Central to who he is as a person. Central to what he does on a, on a daily basis. Christ is everything to him. Christ shall be magnified, he says, in my body, whether it be by my life or by death. Christ is Paul's lasting comfort and hope. Christ is Paul's identity. Christ's majesty and glory is Paul's primary purpose and goal in life. Christ is Paul's all in all. Friend, is he yours? One commentator put it this way, Christ thus became the singular pursuit of Paul's life. Is he your singular pursuit? Are you able to say with the catechism that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? Now we we know that it's not enough to just say these words. It's not, not enough to just say the words for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But we need to know the Christ. We need to know our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's possible. 
It's possible to know him and to be in relationship with him. And Paul's going to flesh that out in chapter 2 as he describes what Christ has done so that he could save sinners like, like us. Look with me at Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Familiar words, wonderful words. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, people like us, being fashioned as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This was part of God's plan to save sinners like you and I. For he had a plan that from before the foundations of the world, he had determined that there would be a way for hopeless, helpless sinners like you and me that we could be brought back into relationship with him so that our ugly sins could be dealt with. So that we could find real purpose and identity by being adopted into the family of God, so that we could find true hope and comfort by, by having an elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who cares for, for you and will do everything for your good, by, by pouring out His Holy Spirit so that He would be a real helper in our time of need, ministering to our spirits that we are the children of God. Even when, even when our life circumstances dictate otherwise. God not only established that plan, but He put it into action as His beloved Son came into this world. He humbled himself. He became a real human being and yet remained very God, but set aside his glory, as it were, for a time. And as, a, as the God-man, he suffered and died in the place of sinners, in his humanity, bearing the, the, the wrath that we deserved to bear, but being upheld in his divinity, as he, as he met the, the, the demands of God's justice, living that perfect life that we couldn't live, he paid the price of our sins. He lived the perfect, that perfect life, perfect righteousness that he then gives to his people. And he didn't do this generically in a generic way, but he did it for his people. So that you can say to your child of God that he did this for my sins. He did this for me. And isn't the, the catechism brings out this personal aspect? What is your only comfort? Notice how it responds that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because with his precious blood, he hath fully satisfied for all my sins. Jesus shed his precious blood for each and every one of his people. He shed his blood to pay for my ugly sins. 
So that when the Father looks on you, dear child of God, he sees in you one who is completely forgiven. He sees one in his sight as righteous, perfect. Not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. But the catechism continues, he says, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who also delivered me from the power of the devil. Delivered me. Not only paid the price for my sins of my incurred debt, but he delivered me from the bonds and the power of the evil one. Oh, Satan loves nothing more when you, when a sinner persists in sin. Living on that path, that road to hell, and if you're on that road and going there comfortably, Satan doesn't care. But when the Lord begins his work in you, Satan will often and does ramp up the attacks. He wants you to be enslaved to your passions and your lusts, saying you can find fulfillment in these Christ came, Christ came and he broke the bonds of this evil one so that you are no longer enslaved to him. You're free from his bondage, free to serve Christ and and to love him. Christ not only delivers from the power, but he protects his people from the, the onslaught of the evil one. He surrounds his people. Think of the example of Elisha, where they, were, they thought they were surrounded by a host of the Syrian army, and Elisha had to tell his servant, no, you need eyes to see, and he asked the Lord to show him. Surrounded by a host, a multitude of heavenly hosts protecting them. Nothing could harm them without going through Christ first. And this is where the catechism then goes. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who also preserves me so that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Christ is everything. He not only satisfies for my sins, he not only delivers me from the power of the evil one, but he preserves me. He will carry me through in the midst of challenging, difficult circumstances. Troubles and difficulties that come from his fatherly hand. Troubles and circumstances that are being used for spiritual, my spiritual good to conform me to his image. Troubles and circumstances and difficulties that are, are being used to loosen my grip from the things of this world. Troubles and circumstances that turn my eyes from this life to the next, where those troubles and sorrows will be gone away where we will see Jesus in his beauty and his glory. Friend, are you able to say, 
with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ. Or with the catechism that I, with my with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own. Is Christ your all in all? Is he your singular passion? In this life, and the one you long for? Or is it Christ and something else? One commentator puts it this way, too often for us it is for me to live as Christ plus work, plus leisure, plus the accumulating of wealth, plus relationships, plus you fill in the blank. He continues, if truth were known, all too often the plus factor has become our primary passion. For me to live is my Friend, where does your identity, where does your purpose lie? Will it stand the transition from this life to the next? Will it be the same? If you had to repeat the phrase, For me to live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. Or would it be two different things? If we are to have comfort in this life, if it's going to be lasting comfort, it is going to be comfort that is going to bear fruit and is going to persevere into eternity. And that's the significance of this comfort. But we'll look at that in our third thought. So far we have considered the scope of this lasting comfort. It is, it is a comfort that will last for this life and the next. The source of this comfort, which is a comfort that is found in Jesus Christ alone. But what's the significance of this comfort for this life and the next? Well, it's a, it's a comfort that is going to be significant for, for you personally, but also for others. But primarily, it's for the glory of Christ. For me to live is Christ, Paul says. Christ was everything to him. And going back to verse 20, he says his prayer was that Christ would be magnified in his body by his life or his death. This is the primary significance of this lasting comfort that the Lord Jesus Christ gets all the glory and the praise. Christ is to be magnified and lifted up. you have this lasting comfort, friend, are you magnifying Jesus in every area of life? 
But maybe, maybe you say, but what, what does that look like? What does it look like to magnify Christ in, in daily life? Well, there will be a growing appreciation for Christ, for who he is. He will increase in our estimation, but we will decrease. We will say with the John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. There will be a, it will involve a greater and greater awareness of my need for the Lord Jesus. At the same time, a greater understanding that I still so often want to be in control, still so often want to have my own way. And so we have this tension of my need for the Lord Jesus and my desire to be rid of my own uh, pursuits will grow, but our desire will be towards Christ. And so often we'll have to pray with the man uh, the father who brought his child to Jesus, I, I, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. This, is, this does not mean, however, that we're going to be living in this constant state of doubt and questioning of whether the Lord's work is real in our life. But, we, but there's a recognition that he delights to help us. Even as our catechism says, when we confess that our only comfort is in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, that my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, he not only delivered me, he not only, he not only uh, delivered me from the bonds of Satan, he not only preserves me, but he grants me by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. And makes me sincerely willing and ready to live unto him. The Lord is magnified when his people acknowledge that he is their all and in all. And they desire to then live for them. And Paul actually begins to, in a beautiful way, begins to describe what this looks like in chapter 4 of the book. We read in Philippians 4. Verse 4, uh, when we, as we seek to live for him and to live out of him, that we're going to rejoice in the Lord always. And then verse 5 is going to add to this, and we're going to let our moderation be known unto all men, for the Lord is at hand. We're going to live in light of eternity. Jesus is returning. Verse 6, we're going to be careful for nothing. Or another way of phrasing that is we're not going to be anxious. But we're, we're, we're going to go to the Lord freely in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, letting our requests be made known unto God. And then verse 7 or verse 8 describes a pattern for what this kind of life is going to look like. We're going to be people who consider and think we're going to be people who, who watch and listen. We're going to be people who speak about and act on things that are characterized by this list that he gives in verse 8. 
things that are true and honest, things that are just and pure, things that are lovely and of a good report, on things that are that have virtue and praise. We're going to consider and think about these things. We're going to watch and listen, watch movies, shows, listen to music that fits these characteristics. We're going to speak about with our neighbors, our friends, the people of God, things that modeled us, not things that are not true, things that are ugly, but things that are just and pure, lovely, of good report. These are the things we're going to talk about. And these are the things we're going to act on, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in in school with our classmates, whether it's in the public square, whether it's in our communities as we as we engage with people in our neighborhoods. It's an all-encompassing life. Is Jesus being magnified by yours? If you have to answer no, why not? Might it be because you don't have this everlasting comfort? Or is it maybe that you, you, you know Christ, you've been saved, but he's not your singular passion for this life and the next? Jesus calls us to magnify him. But this isn't the only significance of having this only comfort in this life. The second significance is, as Paul concludes our text, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When you are able to Commit your entire life and death into the hands of the Lord, knowing that he does everything for a good purpose, with the desire to bring glory to his name. There will be a looking forward to be with him in glory. And Paul wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid of death. He looked forward to death in that sense. To die was gain for him. His death was going to be advantageous, was going to be profitable for him. He longed to depart, he says in verse 23 of chapter 1. The significance of this lasting comfort is that it makes us strangers and pilgrims in this earth as we long for and desire eternal glory and home and gain for, for the child of God. Yes, Paul does talk about death being that last enemy. But death is also the very passageway for the believer to leave this life and to be in their eternal home forevermore. We need discomfort in this life. 
because it's going to be the very process by which the Lord loosens us from this life and prepares us for the next. And what a life that will be, beloved. Have you ever reflected, thought about heaven? Of the full realization what of eternal life consists of? Yes, the child of God has eternal life. But then, in glory to be done with sin, done with the temptations that so often bombard us, to be done with guilt and shame, to be done with the consequences of our sins, the pain, the brokenness, the sorrow, to be forever, to be forever in the presence of the Lord. Unhindered communion with the Savior. To know him fully, to experience the full joy of salvation without hindrance. Death will be gain for the believer. Be a real, substantial advantage. But if you are to know that gain, you need to know that everlasting comfort now in this life already. You and I need Christ today. He needs to be your number one passion in this life. Is he? The words of the song, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, recently written by Matt Papa and others, which is actually based on the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, summarize this need for us. I want to conclude with the lyrics of the song. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to him. Who holds our days within his hands. Who comes apart. What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the ways that bring us nigh upon the shore, the rock of Christ? Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we we will feast in endless joy 
when Christ is ours forevermore. Amen. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Oh, may this be our prayer, our confession, our hope. Lord, for then we have everlasting comfort. We have true purpose and meaning. We have everything. Lord, may we know Christ and him crucified. May Jesus be our all and in all. Lord, we're thankful that there is a way of reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ for sinners like we are. Lord, help us to know him and to live for him in every area of our life. May he be the number one singular passion. And may we do all for his glory in anticipation of being with him forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' powerful and beautiful name. Amen.